This is Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Hello there. Welcome to Life Elsewhere. I'm your host, Norman B. Coming up, national investigative reporter for the Washington Post, Carol Lenig, will join me to talk about the new, controversial book she has co-authored with Philip Rucker. I alone can fix it. Donald Trump's catastrophic final year. Now, you're not going to want to miss Miss Lenig's insights and observations because if they weren't true, you'd think her book was complete fiction. Also in the show, new music you need to hear first. My guest is Winifred Gallagher. Her book is titled New Women in the Old West, From Settlers to Suffragists, An Untold American Story. Winifred, welcome to Life Elsewhere. I'm delighted to be here. The title of your book is something which I, I want to make sure that everybody hears very clearly. New Women in the Old West and then an untold American story. These parts, I think, are so important about your book. It, it goes into such great details about things that I, quite honestly, I think I'm not alone in saying this, that I really didn't realize just how extraordinary some of the women that you portray in your book were. Yeah, I think Western women have really been left out of the ongoing reformation of American history. So many people who had previously been uh, omitted because of race or class or gender have been added back into American history, notably um, Black Americans. But uh, one group I think has really been left out and that's these Western women. I think part of it has to do with the fact that the West in general um, has been overlooked. Western history has been overlooked. Uh, I'm not the first person to observe that it's, you know, everything is on the coast, all the media are on, on the East Coast and West Coast, and they just sort of forget about the flyover country in the middle. Yeah. But yes. it's a lot of very important American history happened in that flyover country. In your, in putting this together, putting this book together, did it strike you that this was a completely different, and I, I hate to say this, but a different breed of woman at that time? Was this a, a period, was this a product of the times? I think that they, they saw themselves as mainstream American women who left the East and the Upper South and went into the West. They did not think of themselves as, you know, radicals or, or like, you know, feminists in boots and buckskins. Yeah. They didn't think of themselves that way. But they did take advantage of uh, certain advantages that, that the West offered that women back East did not enjoy. Uh, starting with statistics, white men significantly outnumbered white women in the West, particularly in the mining towns, which made women and their work much more valued. Uh, one of my favorite stories is the, the woman who migrated to Gold Rush, California, and she was fixing breakfast for her family one morning and a miner passed by and uh, offered her $5 for a hot breakfast. That's about $168 in today's money. And she said he would have paid her $10 if she had asked for it. She was so surprised. So understandably in those circumstances, she was one of, when she got to Sacramento, she was one of three women among 6,000 men. Wow. So in that 
situation. Women, single women had their pick of suitors and unhappy wives soon liberated themselves from unsatisfactory husbands in yes. America's first divorce mills. California very quickly became the number one divorce capital of the nation. Uh, women also benefited from life in, in the West so-called settler society, uh, which was simpler, more experimental uh, of necessity. Every pair of hands was needed. People didn't have time to worry about whether it was women's work or men's work. And that kind of flexibility enabled women to become more equal by acting more like equals. Uh, as in most of America today, it took two partners to support a family. Uh, when, when they first arrived in the West, women very often made all the cash that the family had for a year or two until the crops came in by baking and selling bread, selling eggs, taking in sewing, taking in borders, doing laundry. Uh, apparently, no men in the West knew how to wash his own shirt. In <laughs> yes. um, these new communities just springing up out of nowhere, it was often town mothers, not town fathers, who organized the first schools and churches and charities. Uh, so these women were not, they weren't yet considered men's equals, but they certain na certainly narrowed that equality gap. And they won men's respect as a force to be reckoned with. I mean, the to be to be in the legislature, you had to be a man. Only a man could be elected to office. So men had to be more open and were notably more open to improving women's rights in the West than they were than were men in the South or East. You know, something, Winifred, that you put across in your book uh, is, and you just mentioned the word just now, respect. And it does seem to me that this comes across with the, a lot of the different women that you write about, that they did garner incredible respect from the men folk, which yeah. when you think about it at the time, wow, that's kind of, I'm not going to say it's odd, but you can understand how that could have been because of just the way that they behaved and the, the things that they did. Before we go any further, I want to, I just want to read something from the back of your book. In fact, it's the last paragraph, and I think it pertains to everything that, that the book talks about. And you say, more than a century and a half after the first Western women were enfranchised, American women still struggle to become equal by acting as equals. The time is right to find inspiration in the neglected legacy of those persistent Western foremothers who also confronted an era of great social change and made it work to their advantage. Yeah. So incredibly important. So that's in the afterward that you put in your book. And gosh, thinking about that, as I'm reading your book, I'm, I'm thinking about how things are today and how things have gone over the last hundred years and I, I and I was thinking some of the women that you're writing about I wonder what they would make of where we are today yeah I think they would be very proud of some things and shocked by other things notably we still have not passed the equal rights amendment <laughs> that simply says that men and women are equal that hasn't been able to be passed which is remarkable we can yes. vote but we're not equal yes New women in the Old West, from settlers to suffragists, an untold American story is the title of the book. Winifred Gallagher is my guest. Lots and lots of research that you did for this book, Winifred, and the photographs are wonderful that you've collated in the book. Some of them, I, I was just looking just before we started talking at, at 
they're just daunting some of these pictures that you you've got how did you get hold of all these photographs did, did that take a lot of time just to research these and and yeah, I actually employed a photo researcher to do it because it's a it's a kind of a full-time job to go through the archives. I, I selected the women who I wanted to show and uh, then the photo researcher found them and got permission to print the pictures. Yes. Especially some of the pictures of uh, uh, Native American women, uh, African-American women, they're hard to hunt down and get uh, dates for, um, and I'm very happy to be able to show uh, the range of women because it, it wasn't just the white ladies, the white pioneer ladies. It was, you know, in fact, all the women in the West before the, the, the white migration, they were uh, Native American or, or Mexican or Spanish, some, some often Spanish Mexican. Uh, it was a very complicated and, and intricate culture before the black, white, Asian ladies even arrived. I'm glad that you mentioned that because this is a very important part of your book. You also, you just tacked on the end there, the Asian women that were involved in, mm -hmm. in, in, that you can talk about in your book. And I think when you first read the title, you're not thinking, oh, women of color you're, you're thinking because this is what we've been brought up with this yeah. is the kind of thing that we've we've sort of been I don't know into our sort of brains you know the idea of a cowboy and a cowgirl and this is completely different to that although there is one person if I remember correctly and I'm trying to look and see yes uh, the uh, Lucille Mulholm, <laughs> Mulholm known as the champion lady steer roper of the world I just talk to me about her because that's lovely yeah, she was, I think she only weighed 80 or 85 pounds. She grew up on this 80,000 acre ranch in the Oklahoma panhandle with a bunch of brothers. And she was just a, like Annie Oakley. She was just a phenomenal athlete. She could, you know, she could rope, she could shoot, she could do the whole nine yards. And Theodore Roosevelt, who was a big uh, fan of the American West, as you know, uh, he visited at one point and, and watched her at work and said, uh, this is an apocryphal story, if you can uh, lasso me a wolf, you can lead my, my presidential inaugural parade or something like that. So Roosevelt got back to the White House and sure enough, she sent him the wolf skin that she had lassoed. <laughs> And he he said he officially said she was American, America's first cowgirl. She really wasn't, but she got a lot of publicity. But you'll yeah. notice that uh, her family, thats she had to be called the champion lady steer roper. Uh, and her public relations included the fact that she could also play Chopin and make a mayonnaise. Yes, yes. That was important that that was put in, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yes, yes. She was yes. the lady. She was the lady, yes. Out of all the different ladies, and I'm gonna, this is a difficult question, I guess, but do you have a favorite about the, the different ladies that you portray in your book? I, I can't say she, one of my favorites certainly is Dr. Esther Pohl Lovejoy. She's from Oregon. She grew up in, her father was British, actually he jumped ship. Um, he, she was brought up in a, in a logging camp, had very little education. Her parents had a lot of children, not much money. Uh, she uh, somehow managed to get herself in a situation where she was clerking in department stores in, in Portland to make her tuition to go to medical school. This was like in 1892 or something. Right. She's one of three girls in, in medical school, went through medical school, married a surgeon, 
went to Alaska. I guess Oregon wasn't wild enough for her. Went to Gold <laughs> Rush, Alaska, was paying God. house calls on a dog sled, came back to Portland, had a baby, started her medical practice, ran the suffrage organization. The mayor appointed her the head of the city's board of health, which was very unusual for a woman at that point. Um, she was a major force in, in getting suffrage passed in Oregon. And then uh, she ran for Congress, didn't win, but spent the rest of her long life uh, working for international women's medical associations. She wrote two books on women's doc women doctors and she was dropped dead gorgeous. You should see her picture. <laughs> I, I, I asked you about, do you have a favorite? And I was wondering whether your favorite would be the same as mine. Yoveta, I'm not sure if I'm getting the right last name correct. Idar, Idar, is that how you mm -hmm. say her name? Yovita Idar. Yes, she is kind of peculiarly interesting to me. I found I found her story very. I, I was fascinated by her. Can you talk about Yovita? Yeah, she's a remarkable woman. Um, she was um, she was from Texas. She was Mexican. Uh, very proud of her Mexican heritage uh, at the time of Mex Texas was just a very, very racist um, culture at the time. Uh, there was a lot of uh, violence, lynchings, terrible things going on uh, against Mexican people. She and her family uh, were newspaper people and they uh, publicized these abuses. She got in big trouble with the Texas Rangers who actually came to the, her newspaper at one point to break her printing press and she barred the door. You know? She was also, uh, she started uh, a league of Mexican women who were suffragists. They said that they you know, had had it with uh, you know, the oppression of, of the culture and, and uh, the American rules, they wanted to vote. And she was also a, a Methodist among all these Hispanic Catholics because Catholics. she didn't feel that the Catholic church treated women uh, equally. Uh, and she stood up for all of these uh, really remarkable causes uh, amidst a lot of violence and real, real oppression. She was fearless. In putting the book together, Winifred, I, I, it, it comes across to me in reading your book that you must have thoroughly enjoyed doing all the research. In fact, I get the feeling that it was just a, an absolute pleasure for you from beginning to end. Well, <laughs> I'm glad it seems that way. It was, it was four years of a lot of hard work and yeah, a lot of, yeah. uh, a lot of uh, difficulties because these women had really been kind of neglected. You could get odds, you know, lady school teachers or hookers with hearts of gold, or, you know, there were different yeah. things. To get them all together, I think the thing that really uh, made me decide to write the book was for about a dozen years, I lived half time in rural Wyoming. Yes. And I was just struck by the by the incredible resilience and resourcefulness of the women art. They ran the whole town. The mayor was an 80 year old woman. Yeah. Uh, and I just thought, was it something in the water? You know, like, what is it? And uh, I, that's when I started going back and doing some research. And I found that this, this attitude of kind of independence and, and, and skillfulness and mm -hmm. civic mindedness really went back to this old West era of, of the course. 1840s to the early 20th century. 
of course, I should have said you thoroughly enjoyed writing this book when you got to the end. I, I, yeah. I know, that it, <laughs> I, yeah. I, I know yeah. that it must have been a lot of hard slogging work. But at the same time, you write it, you, you, your style of writing, and, and this is something that always interests me, particularly in, in nonfiction. Your style of writing is very factual. You don't sort of get into, into sort of fancy flowery descriptions you tell us exactly what you want to tell us and I and I rather like that I think that that works very well for this I I, I am interested in 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 the research for the book I am interested in how you decided to get the, the editing part for you not going to an editor but you yourself Winifred Gallagher yeah. the writer editing as you're going along with all the information you had that's actually uh, an excellent question because uh, when I started, the book I ended up publishing is not the book that I started out writing. Uh, there were two big surprises for me along the way. One was that uh, the women of the Old West were not just these stereotyped, the martyrish pioneer wife. There are statues all over the West of these women with a bonnet and an apron. They yes. never have a name. All the statues of men have, this is, you know, George Jones or whoever. Uh, or so they're either the pioneer wives or the hookers with the hearts of gold. Uh, what I found was, in fact, they were single homesteaders and college co-eds and shop owners and suffragists. The other real revelation in terms of structuring the book, no one had really paid attention to the fact that the suffrage movement and the settlement of the West were overlapping epics. They happened at the exact same time. And somehow these women who were very busy building homes and communities from scratch, they, they not only participated in the suffrage movement, at, at, at many places they were actually led it. So that to me is really a remarkable achievement that they could do this kind of double barreled thing. You know, while we're setting up our homes and starting our, our communities, we're also like leading a movement. It's, it's um, I think they don't get half the credit that they, they should get. I agree with you, and I love the fact that you've made this very clear in your book, because what's going on back east is completely different. So you make that very, very clear. One thing I wanted to ask you about is that when we're talking about the West, because you, one of the, um, yes, we're talking about um, Lucille Mulhall. She was from Oklahoma. Oklahoma was considered at the time to be the West, whereas these days we consider it to be a flyover state. Well, Oklahoma is an interesting, uh, like Texas, the Census Bureau considers Oklahoma and Texas to be Southern states. Yeah. And in many respects, the, the, the Eastern part of those states is more like the South and the Western part is more like the West. So West, it's, hard yes. to, it's hard to sort of qualify the, yes. that particular thing. Because Lu Louise, who we talked about earlier, was a, a an astounding cowgirl. You, want, you don't want to think of her as Southern woman, you think of her as <laughs> no. Western woman. Right, right. <laughs> What I'm thinking of is that when we talk about the West, we think about California, we think we think about um, Idaho, Washington State, Oregon, yeah, I guess Wyoming and, and, and parts of Montana, I guess. Um, we don't really sort of these days, I'm talking about these days, not back then, but that back then, the West was a huge area. I, I, it was everything west of the when when migration started, the West started at the Mississippi River. Yes. Then the boundary, over time, the boundary became maybe like the Missouri River. 
Then yes. finally, it kind of in the later 19th century, it sort of um, formalized at the at the at the 99th meridian. So that's kind of the invisible line where the where the kind of verdant green east is separate from the largely arid semi-arid yes. west. Right. Uh, I mean, that's a major thing that people have to realize about about the west. It's just much much drier than the east, and that kind of it helps explain a lot of things. Winifred, do you think that the reason that the suffrage movements became so prevalent in the West at that time was because of the, the, the spirit of the women involved? Or was there anything else that was in, involved in that attraction to the suffrage movement? It first caught fire in the West um, for a variety of reasons, compared to men in the South and the East, uh, Western men were were just more open to the idea of giving women more rights. Uh, they also wanted to do that to their own advantage, so that many legislators simply wanted more voters, especially women voters, in places like Wyoming, where there were nine white men for every one white woman. Uh, so also passing controversial laws like suffrage was much easier in the loosely governed territories, um, which also had to, they had they had to write constitutions, so they yes. had to address issues like women's legal rights and voting rights. They were compelled to debate those issues. Um, but for all those reasons, in Wyoming and and uh, Utah in 1869 and 1870, the the male legislator slaters enfranchised women but after that i think it's a it's a mistake to say that western men gave women the vote because right. after those first two gifts it was really women tirelessly lobbying for suffrage bills and trying and sawing they were defeated they tried and tried again tried over again uh until by the 1890s when the suffragists actually won in colorado and idaho that at that point you had four western states enfranchised women, not a single one in the East. Yes. I'm curious to know, uh, as you as you get into the end of the book, there must have been some things that you that you discovered along the way that not necessarily took you by surprise, but you you yourself, Winifred Gallagher, said, well, I didn't know that. I was some takeaways oh, uh, that you, yeah, yeah. An awful lot of those. Uh, yeah. I think the most obvious one was that uh, the suffragists were mostly stereotyped as these kind of white ladies. They were they were middle class and upper class white women, traditional wives and mothers. That was the stereotype. But what I found was number one, a lot of them were women of color, Native American women, Hispanic women, Asian women, Black women, and a lot of them were. Uh, single, gay, or divorced. Yes. Uh, a yes. remarkable number of women in my book um, were not wives and mothers. They didn't fit that mold. And I think um, that that's, they, they, they were just the kind of women that weren't going to sit in an abusive marriage, or they weren't going to live in a way that society told them they had to live. Um, yes. So that was quite a surprise to me. Yes. 
as I'm reading your book, as I'm going through it, I kept thinking to myself how the landscape, and I don't mean the geographical landscape, I just mean the, the, the social landscape has changed, but has it to some degrees? I'm just thinking that there is still a sort of a ruggedness in, in the West, and there's still a difference between how we see the, the West as opposed to the East in America. And, and, and for you, for, for, for the writer of this book, the author of this book, is that important that there is this distinction between the East and the West? I think it's part of what makes America such an interesting place. I mean, I, I love New England. Yeah. I have had wonderful times in the American South. Yeah. Uh, I lived in the Rocky Mountain West, uh, which as you kind of point out is different from the California. California is a place uh, <laughs> yeah. all its own. Uh, the Pacific Northwest is different from the Rocky Mountain West. Yes. So, and, and the whole Southwest. I mean, it, people who have traveled in the Southwest, you it, history really comes alive to you there when you see how Hispanic uh, way up into the into the U.S. states, it's a it's still very Hispanic. Yes. Uh, culture. So we we are uh, we are. United States. Sometimes we're more united than others, but we are we are a bunch of states, and we we have real differences. And I think yeah. that um, one thing I wanted to do with the book was to draw some attention to a part of of the country that I don't think gets a fair shake. And I think you've done that very well, Winifred. I think that Thank you've you. you've managed to sort of get you've opened my eyes. I, I have got to say, you've really given me some some food for thought, as they say. I have been talking to Winifred Gallagher. Her book is uh, such a good read. New Women in the Old West from Settlers to Suffragists, an Untold American Story. Winifred, it's been a delight talking to you. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, I enjoyed myself enormously. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Winifred. Nice bye talking bye. to you. Bye-bye now. Don't forget, the links to the books and music we feature are always up at lifeelsewhere.co. Pop on over there to learn more about this show and Life Elsewhere music. Coming up, the book is titled I Alone Can Fix It, Donald Trump's Catastrophic Final Year. Philip Rucker and Carol Lennick wrote this deep dive into the extraordinary world of the Trump administration in 2020. Carol Lennig will join me, so don't go anywhere. Now, I'm going to take the opportunity to share with you music you need to hear. It's Hannah Peel with Patterned Formation from her new album, Fur Wave. More info on the other side.
That was Patterned Formation from the album Fur Wave by Hannah Peel, who plays all the instruments, composed the songs, and produced the album. Hannah is also a late-night broadcaster. Now do yourself a favour, check out her work. The link is up at lifeelsewhere.co. Now, I'd be interested in hearing what you think of Hannah Peel's music. Send your thoughts to normanb at lifeelsewhere.co. Stand by and get ready for the riveting inside details about Donald Trump's catastrophic final year with Carol Lennig, co-author of I Alone Can Fix It, right after this. Thank you for listening to Life Elsewhere, hosted by Norman B. To learn more about our program, our guest, and the music we feature, go to lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. The book is titled I Alone Can Fix It, Donald Trump's Catastrophic Final Year, written by Philip Rucker and Carol Lennig. Carol is with me right now. Carol, thank you so very much for joining us at Life Elsewhere. It's my pleasure to be here, Norman. I'm going to have to say that I know that you must be so exhausted, but we can get to that in a minute. I've got to ask you something. (laughs) (laughs) And this is, I want to go back in time just a little bit to 2015, just after Mr. Trump came down the gold escalator. I did a show titled A Caricature for President. Now, I wasn't being funny or satirical. I was deadly serious. Now, on the last page of your book, you recount that Mr. Trump told you how much he enjoyed your interview. A great honor, he said. And then you write, Trump said with a twinkle in his eye, for some sick reason, I enjoyed it. Now, for me, Carol, that was the caricature Trump. He was right there. You brought him right out of the (laughs) the page, right right into focus. And i got to ask you, is there a real person behind the makeup and the hair? (laughs) You know, I'm so delighted that you focus on that moment because it is like it happened this morning to me. I remember that moment so clearly. Uh, To me, it showed a little bit of self-awareness on the part of Donald Trump. You know, he was recognizing that he craves being the centerpiece. He craves talking about himself and being the story. Um, he was allowing uh, that he, that that is his issue. As for a real person, everyone's going who is a critic of Donald Trump will hate that I say this, but he does a very good job of being a charmer. He is um, he was incredibly generous and solicitous to us when we were there. One thing I've got to say about the real person part is it's when he says all these things that are fiction, when he says all of these things that are absolutely untrue, like the election was rigged, there's all this evidence, tremendous evidence, one thing he told us, when he tells us that he was the most amazing president and that he could beat George Washington if George Washington was brought back from the dead, all these things that he says with no basis, in fact, he looks like he believes it. You know, I'm a trained investigator, investigative reporter, and I look for people appearing to be deceptive. He doesn't have any of those physical traits. When he tells you something, he looks like it it is completely true. Do you think, Harold, that 
because he says these crazy, absurd things, and they can be proven as lies and just nonsense, the fact that he says them, he repeats them again and again and again, like a, like a carnival barker selling something. It, he, he just believes that people are going to buy it because he repeats it so often. Well, you know, he's been right. <laughs> people, <laughs> yeah. people have people have bought it. Seventy yeah. million people bought it. Um, yeah. And repetition's not a bad thing. One of the things we have found, Phil and I, in our in our reporting, is that he is a genius at one thing, and that is mastering his megaphone. Yes. He has been able to tap into a part of America that feels dismissed, forgotten, um, derided. And he's not only made them feel that he's their defender, it's become a codependent relationship in which he stokes their anger and their fear so that it is actually on the rise. Rather than being solved, he's keeping yes. them kind of hooked on that fear and anger. But the irony is, Carol, is that... He has no relationship to the people who he's encouraging to behave the way they do. It's all about money and power for Trump, which leads me to ask you, what's it all about for the likes of Mulvaney and Meadows, etc.? You know, some of these individuals who um, have joined uh, Trump at the hip had uh, careers that were, you know, public and interesting, but they weren't very prominent powerhouses in their respective fields. Mm. Um, and I'm not being, I'm not being ad hominem. I'm not personifying this, uh, making it personal for anyone in particular. But I noticed in looking at the retinue of individuals who served Trump in his executive offices that. Many of them basically hit the lottery on their resume because what they had been doing before was relatively um, insignificant and minor. Trump didn't have a real A-team when he came into the White House, but a lot of these people were able to, to become you know, cabinet members with almost no uh, background for the job. Yes. I've got to ask you this. Did COVID save us from another four years of Mr. Trump? Or to put it another way, was Mr. Trump safe from pretending to do a job he didn't really want in the first place? <laughs> I think that um, there's two questions there <laughs> that are yeah, very different, yeah. <laughs> not just in their form, but two different things, which is yeah. Trump did not expect to win in 2016. And he was trying to brand his his licensing deals. He was trying to build the brand and he was shocked to win. Yeah. However, he fell in love with being president and he absolutely in 2020 wanted to get reelected. He did everything, everything that he could. Um, I think that COVID to the second question, it was his undoing. He so, so chaotically and so miserably failed in trying to protect the American people. Um, he put himself first so frequently. He put his political short-term gain at the top of the pecking order. Uh, people could tell that from 
the chaotic and, and vacillating advice he gave from the news conferences where it didn't look like the government knew what they were doing, the, the, the changing story on masks, the changing story on, you know, the vaccines, the changing, the, the, the bizarre suggestion that we should inject ourselves with bleach. Everyone remembers that. Yes. Re, people were starting to get frightened about whether or not the government was up to this because of what they were watching Trump do. I'm talking to Carol Lennig, who with Philip Rucker has written, I alone can fix it. You chronicle the events moment by moment about COVID and what the government was doing, what Trump was doing. And, and I've got to tell you, uh, it's just, it's nail-biting reading. It really is. It's just moment by moment, you're telling us who's coming in, who's going out. <laughs> I mean, it's just well, this, you know, it's wonderful. You know, yeah. you know, we had cameras installed in the in the Oval for this purpose. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right, yes. <laughs> now, in your final interview at Marlago, did you have the urge to ask him something, but you and Phil just, well, you just couldn't do it? And I'm thinking because you know that Trump deflects so readily. I felt it was really important in this interview. There are a lot of different kinds of interviews. Yeah. There's a conference, there's a confrontational interview. There's a there's an interview that's preliminary where you're just trying to get your grounding. I've done a lot of different kinds of interviews. In this one, what Phil and I really wanted to hear was what did the president think about his presidency? How did mm. he make his decisions? How did he handle this? Why did he do this? And so really, it was a listening tour for the two hours and 45 minutes. Now, we did dispute and confront him on a few things to make sure we got an answer. Yeah. Um, he doesn't always like to answer the question you ask. But, but our goal was not to dispute him as much as it was to hear him. You know, Carol, I've interviewed a lot of people over the years, prime ministers, politicians, all kinds of people, just like you have. And I was wondering with Trump, whether there's something about him, whether there's an aura about Trump, maybe it's the makeup, maybe it's the hair, I don't know, but there's something, not intimidating, but something almost sort of, I mean, like interviewing Elvis if he came back to life. Is it, am I right in thinking that there's something sort of strangely different about Trump? No, I found him to be a normal yeah. um interview no I, I i but maybe because i just view everybody the same way when you sit <laughs> yes. down uh, yeah. sit down across yeah. the table like i'm gonna ask questions and you, i hope you're gonna answer them right. um i do find in the reporting that we did that a lot of people were intimidated by him and that yes. his that his fierceness was like a lion you know the the scene where mark esper comes to the Oval Office after he's given a news conference and, and has said that he does not support invoking the Insurrection Act and using National Guard to quell uh, civil rights protests and Black Lives Matters protests. When he gives that news conference, he's ordered over to the Oval and the chief of staff tells him, Trump is so angry right now, he is going to rip your face off. And indeed, that's almost exactly what Trump does to him when he shows up in front of everyone, cabinet members, generals, just roars into his face nonstop for 15 or 20 minutes. People were afraid of this hulking lion. Um, 
who could make you feel quite scared. Now, I didn't see that side of him when we were in Mar-a-Lago. Yes. I found the generous host. Now, here we are the day after the first day of the January the 6th hearings, and you write this, that this is Trump describing January the 6th. It was a loving crowd. Many people told me that. Now, that's a familiar phrase he uses for everything. Is is that something that he does just because he can, that he, that he says... It was a loving crowd. Many people told me that. This that told me that. Many people told me that. It, <laughs> uh, yes, uh, Norman, you and I have a, a similar <laughs> ear for strangeness because that is one of his favorite phrases. Many yes. people have told me. So when he was resisting wearing masks, you know, the CDC director, Robert Redfield, we learned one of his greatest disappointments in office was that he, in his career, was that he was not able to convince Donald Trump to wear a mask. He not only knew that would protect the president, he knew it would protect the country. People would start modeling what the president did. And he he's regretful because he knows it killed thousands of people. Thousands of people could have lived. But when he and Sean Connolly, the White House physician, were trying to convince Trump to do this, Trump would often come back and say, many people are telling me that I look weak when I wear a mask. Mm. I wonder if the many people included Donald Trump's inner voice, right? Donald Trump is obsessed with not looking weak. People are telling me, you know, people are telling. It reminds me of like um, that Shakespeare play uh, where the one of the characters keeps saying, well, I wouldn't say it, but my friends tell me that I'm yes. very good at blank. Yes, yes. You know, it's so funny you say that. I, I did an, an interview with an author about a book based around Trump and Shakespeare. And it's so funny. In some respects, Trump is very Shakespearean, isn't he? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yesterday, again, going back to the January the 6th hearing, Officer Henry Dunn asked, who hired the hitman? Wow. Carol. Your opinion on that? Who hired the hitman? I wish I had subpoena power to answer this question with incredible precision. I think it is the most important question in one respect, and that is, I would break it into two. Who organized and financed the hit? It is... um, obvious that the supporters who came to the the oval forgive me the ellipse and then stormed the capitol that a subset of them were organized for a crime that it was a crime they were plotting and uh their logistics were things they were organizing it's also indicated and forgive me it's also clear that the supporters who may or may not have had a plot afoot came to Washington and went to the Capitol in a call and response that was from Donald Trump. Donald Trump told them, and they have said in multiple FBI interviews that the reason that they were on those grounds, the reason they, they pushed through those barricades was because Donald Trump wanted them to. Yes, so well put. Carol Lenning is my guest. The book is called I Alone Can Fix It. She wrote the book with Philip Rucker. In 2004, Al Franklin wrote a book titled Lies and the Lying Liars Who Tell Them, A Fair and Balanced Look at the Right. Now, even Mr. Franken couldn't have foreseen the events after the election of 2016. And my question to you is, in regards to Trump's catastrophic final year, does lying mean anything anymore? 
It's one of the things I'm the most worried about as a reporter. I have to say it makes me shudder to think that we are not going once again soon to have a shared reality, a shared set of facts. Our country faces and our world faces a, um, a large menu of problems that have to be addressed and solved. And reporters view ourselves as people who provide the information upon which a democracy can act. We provide the facts so you can decide. Yes. I think that was a network TV ma uh, motto at one point. We <laughs> yes. get you the facts so yes. you can decide. You decide, right, yes. <laughs> but we're not uh, policymakers, but we do think that that shared set of facts is so important. And it, it just, again, makes me shudder to think that the lying that has been so successful, the lie, the big lie that, that Republican, and I'm not picking them out because they're Republicans. I'm not no. picking on them because I'm partisan. I'm picking them out because they are the ones doing it. Republicans continue to promote and spread that big lie, again, for their own gain of, of tapping into the Donald Trump base, the Donald Trump voting bloc. And now they're trapped in pushing yes. that lie and staying yes. with that lie. I talked to a Republican operative the other day who said that he was in near tears on January 7th because he said he could see Republicans pulling away from the shared knowledge of the horror that had happened on January 6th. And their feeling that Donald Trump was, if not solely responsible, primarily responsible. And he was in near tears because he said, if they had just broken with Trump then, all joined hands, then we no longer would have to push this lie about a rigged election, about um, you know a picnic on Capitol Hill that wasn't that violent. Uh, this wouldn't be necessary. But we've yeah. got to fix it as a country. And as a reporter, I feel like it's more and more incumbent on me and more and more my duty to show my work, to explain to the public how we got to our facts so they stop distrusting them. Carol, what a great job you, you and Phil have done with I Alone Can Fix It. So such a lot of research went into it. Such a lot of late nights, I'm guessing. I'm a late night <laughs> phone calls. <laughs> I'm just, I've, I've got to ask you one question, and that is, you spoke to so many people, some on the record, a lot not on the record, but who didn't you talk to? Was there, were there a couple of people that you really wanted to speak to, but you didn't get to speak to? I'm so sorry. I'm going to decline to answer that question okay. on, on the on the threat that it's a process of elimination. <laughs> okay, we, yes. we interviewed a lot of people. Yes. Um, and let me just say they were in the room. And I think that's what's that's what was really valuable about this experience. Yes. Yes. Carol, it is an absolute, it's a masterwork of, of research uh, and documentation. I loved reading it. it. It really is absolutely excellent. You and Phil have done a great job. I, I've seen you on a number of TV interviews in the last couple of days, and, and you seem exhausted quite naturally. But am I correct in observing that you and Philip are, now, dare I suggest it, dazed by your experience in writing I Alone Can Fix It? <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that I look exhausted. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that. Um, I'm just, I'm just, yeah, yeah, go, go ahead, please. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
I do think that Bill and I were, you know, because we are hardened reporters, we think we do a pretty darn good job at the first draft of history. I think we are pretty amazed at what we were able to learn in the deeper dive into this era, this year like no other. And we're also so gratified at the reception to the book that other people not only value this work, uh, this kind of journalism, but that they uh, are supporting it by buying our book. They're supporting the, you know, this kind of, of deep, deep, deep excavation. Uh, we're gratified they want that. It, and we really think it is a history book, but it's also so important for current events. We are living um, through something and it's not over. Yes, you're absolutely right. Carol, I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. The book is called I Alone Can Fix It, Donald J. Trump's Catastrophic Final Year. Carol Lenning has been my guest. Thank you so very much for joining us at Life Elsewhere. Thank you, Norman. i got to tell you, it's a large book and it's gripping and it's full of astonishing details. Now, I don't know if the gentleman responsible for the next piece of music were deliberately expecting I would play their new single right after speaking with Carol Lennig, referencing January the 6th. But Harry Stafford of Inca Baby's fame and punk blues veteran Marco Butcher have joined forces to give us there's someone trying to get in. This is Life Elsewhere. Yeah.
There's someone trying to get in, say Harry Stafford and Marco Butcher. Now, I have no doubts we're going to be hearing more from these two chaps in the near future. I want to say thank you to my guests, Winifred Gallagher and Carol Lennig, and a big thank you to you for listening. You can hear this show again at our affiliate stations, and it will be up as a podcast, available at all the usual outlets and Mixcloud. Now, do make sure you let me know what you think of life elsewhere. Have you got any suggestions for future guests? Send me an email. My address comes up in just a moment. And make sure you jot it down. Till next time, be well, be safe, and you know, it costs nothing. Be nice. Bye-bye. You have been listening to Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Life Elsewhere is written and produced by Norman B. Guest booking and additional research by Stephanie Lane. Behind the scenes assistance by James Van, Bruce Goodman, and Allison Klein. We love to hear what you think about Life Elsewhere. Send your questions, queries, and comments to info at lifeelsewhere.com. Dot co. That's C-O. Mm-hmm.